And now, from Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There's really no other way to say it. Brian Cranston is just an extraordinary actor. Any fan of the series Breaking Bad knows that, having watched him develop the character of Walter White from a sad, hapless, and dying high school chemistry teacher into a criminal mastermind over the, over the course of a series. But his body of work is long and deep on the stage, on television, and in film. In recent years, he played Dalton Trumbo, the brilliant and eccentric blacklisted writer from the McCarthy era. He completely enveloped the role of Lyndon Johnson in the play and then movie all the way. And he's been absolutely electrifying as Howard Beale in the current remake of Petty Chayefsky's 1976 movie Network as a play on Broadway. I got a chance to see the play and sit down with Brian Cranston recently in New York to talk about his life and career, about the difference between playing fictional characters and bringing historical figures to life, and about the lessons he draws from some of these plot lines about the politics and media environment of today. Brian Cranston, so great to see you. I had the privilege of watching you uh, perform in Network last night. And I just have to tell anybody who has a chance to see it that they must because it was uh, one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen, one of the most oh, extraordinary performances. Thank you, Dave. I, I don't know. I, we were just saying before we started rolling, I don't know how you do that seven days a week <laughs> uh, because of the intensity of the performance. But It's, it's kind of like a, an athletic event. I get up for the game, I put on the uniform and the pads, I get out there and I try to leave everything out there. I get exhausted mentally, physically, yeah. emotionally, and it's not, but you're on adrenaline still. So it's not until the next day when I wake up that I go, oh, my neck is sore. <laughs> How do I get that bruise? Or, yeah. yeah, I can only imagine. So what's so interesting to me is you are... The, 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 the product of, of actors, mm. but not, not actors who, who succeeded at acting, and that kind of shaped your early life. Tell, tell me about that. You, you wrote beautifully about it in your, uh, in, your, in your memoir, A Life in Parts. The first part was yeah. one thing, and the second part of your childhood was another, and a lot of it revolved around how hard this 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 life of acting is well i think it is it, it's hard but but isn't every business hard I, I think that's the common denominator of everyone who's successful is that you work hard um my parents met in a in an acting class after the war they had a fast and furious romance they got married they start having kids and they were gonna conquer the world like every young couple thinks your dad was from chicago right yeah so was my mom uh-huh and uh and then reality sets in that this is a very difficult business. And in show business especially, success is only acquired through hard work and a lot of luck. You have to be patient and persistent and somewhere, somehow, get the lucky breaks necessary for you to crack open that door and show people what you can do. 
And that's where the hard work comes in. You have to be talented. You have to be able to produce. And my father was always intent on being a star. And it never came. And when it didn't come, it crushed him. And he left the family, and it crushed my mother, the love of her life. And she became an alcoholic, so she was absent really emotionally for the kids. And my dad was absent completely. And so there was a vacuum left. And what to do with that? And I was 11, 12 years old and far too young to be thrust into that position. But in retrospect, I look back and I realize that, well, parents are always teaching you something. In the best of cases, it's how to behave, how to become a good adult. And in some cases, in many cases for me, it's what not to do. I looked at the pathway that my mother took and that my father took as a cautionary tale and realized that's not where I want to go. You, uh, you, you talked about what parents do when they're doing things the right way. You were, uh, when, when your dad left and your mother kind of crashed, you got sent off to your grandparents who uh, were disciplinarians yeah. and they were, you were on a farm. Right. Um, that must have been uh, kind of a shock to your system. It was. My brother and I went kicking and screaming. We hated the idea of going, but um, the collapse of the family, we were, our house was foreclosed on. We were kicked out. We had no means. So my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, uh, took us in in a little community called Yucaipa, California. And they had a little farm, a gentleman's farm, and next to us was an egg ranch that my brother and I worked at. What we didn't realize at our young age was what my grandfather and grandmother were able to provide was a, a discipline, strictness, order, and predictability. predictability. Yeah. That's what we needed. We wouldn't have asked for it, but that's what we needed. Yeah. And that's what we got. I saw a story somewhere, and I don't know whether it was during that period that you were horseback riding and ran into a drifter who ended up becoming notorious very <laughs> soon after that. We were, uh, I, it was actually before the experience with my grandparents when I was still living in Canoga Park, California, and my female cousin, who was just a year older than I was, and I were dropped off at the Spawn Ranch in Santa Susana Pass in Chatsworth to go horseback riding. This is in the suburb of California, in Los Angeles. And uh, we were getting our horses, and some young hippie at the time, this was 1967, mm-hmm. came running in and yelling, Charlie's on the hill, Charlie's on the hill. And it startled us, and we grabbed each other. <laughs> <laughs> and the old guy who was checking us in said, oh, okay. And we looked out the window, and maybe eight or ten young people jumped on horses and went galloping away. It was like a scene out of a movie. It was like, my, that was exciting. And the guy said, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry. Okay, so we forgot about that. And he goes out and gets us our little slow horses, and we <laughs> mounted, and we walked off in the same direction. About a 20 minutes later, we can see this trail of horses coming back our way, and it's a very thin pathway. And so we were on the right, they were on the left, and there was a man in the middle 
a short man, bearded, black hair, uh, very thin and skinny, skinny and, and he was not holding his reins. The, the person in front of him had the reins of his horse as well, and they were just pulling him. And through the undulation of the horse, he was just going with the motion like a machine. And as we passed probably, oh, four or five feet away from him, we're, we're walking back and we just looked at him and he had these big, dark eyes. And we memorized that face because of the fact it was so hyperbolic in yeah. everything that happened. Mesmerizing. Mesmerized. Yeah. And as soon as they all passed, my cousin who was in front of me turned back and says, that must be Charlie. And I went, yeah, I guess. Ooh, that was weird. Uh-huh. And we forgot about it, of course. It was a year and a half, two years later, that the the Sharon Tate murders were being uh, investigated and they arrested Charlie Manson and as... And a, and the picture popped up on the news, and I gasped. You right away. You, right away, I went, <gasps> and it was like, oh my god! And uh, my cousin and I tried to get a hold of each other back in the days. You either were home or not, and yes. that was it. And uh, finally, we did. Did you? Yes, I. He, <laughs> yes, he was the guy. Oh my god! And we were shocked, but that was our brush with Charlie Manson. Yeah, yeah, fr- that's frightening. <laughs> a little bit, and yeah. when you think of. Wow, I guess we were in danger and we had no knowledge of that. Yeah, yeah. So you, we, we talked about the, the, the needing structure. Um, your, your brother, who is older than you, found, found it in a, in a police yeah. youth organization and, and you followed suit. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, I guess, you know, it's very clear in retrospect that you look back and it's a 12-year-old boy uh, and my brother was 14 uh, and he joined the LAPD Explorer Group. Back then, if you remember, they used to bring all on on, uh, visit day. It's like occupation day and they used to bring people from the military and the fire department and the police department and all these things and the gas department. Where where are you going to work, you know? And my brother joined the LAPD Explorers. I didn't really know why. Um, But they traveled. He's 16 years old and the group went to Hawaii for three weeks. And I was amazed by that. The second year, they went to Japan. And I thought, okay, as soon as I'm 16, the minimum age, I am joining this, and that's the end of it. Well, I joined, and you have to go to the LAPD Academy eight Saturdays in a row to train in, in police procedure because they're, they're grooming you to become a police officer. And I graduated first in my class. Out of 111 other 16-year-olds, I was number one. And all of a sudden, I, I said, oh, I, I guess I have an aptitude toward this. This is what I should do. And so that's... And you went to community college and you actually studied uh, police sciences. Yes, that's what my pathway was because I didn't have parental guidance on anything. And so I made it myself. And that seemed to be a logical choice until I took an acting class by happenstance, right? By happenstance. I, I wanted to transfer from a junior college to a, a university so that before I went into the LAPD, I had a degree. 
And uh, that also seemed very pragmatic to me. And then the counselor said, well, you have to take elective courses. You can't just take all your major. Oh, okay. And uh, acting. Oh, that's good. And my so there was nothing in your head that said, oh, I, acting. I know about acting. My, my parents were, my dad was on TV. And Well, I, I, I kind of buried that, I think, because of the, of the destruction of the family nucleus. And, and I was pe- trying to carve my own pathway. And, and I, I remember when I did a school play or two and, and acted in my garage. And that was fun. And so then I thought, okay, I think that would be fun again. And then my first acting assignment in that class was given simply by random, wherever you happen to be standing. And I was supposed to do this scene with this really pretty girl. And it was a couple is making out on a park bench. Yeah. And there I am going home. I got nervous and we kissed and we kissed some more and kissed some more. And then I would get anybody into acting. Right. And we did the scene. (laughs) I asked her out at the break and she said, no, she has a boyfriend. And to which I went, oh, okay. And when she walked away, I I realized I would have bet you any amount of money that that girl liked me. She She was acting. She was acting. So the power of that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was in a flop sweat that after kissing this girl and, and now... She really was just acting, and oh my, I was spinning, and I had to, I had to get away. Would I, that everybody in Hollywood would have taken the cue as you did? <laughs> yes. A lot of people would be in a lot better shape. Well, you know? but uh, so so, but then you and you never did become a police officer. You and your brother went off, right? And you know, it, I, it was time to transfer to that university to continue administration of justice major. And I just wasn't committed to it. I, I was now thoroughly in neutral. Uh, not, I didn't really know what to do. So I, my brother and I had motorcycles as our only means of transportation at the time. And we decided to leave California just to go on an adventure. And we were gone for two years. That's, We'd get that's jobs a long adventure. Here and there. Yeah. And what I realized from that, it was I was protecting myself. I was allowing myself to go get lost, go figure things out, go mature, take your time, don't dive into something because that's pretty you know, sophisticated sort of self-preservation instincts, you know, for yeah. for a kid who'd been buffeted quite a bit. Yes. Well, I wish I could say that I knew that right. consciously. Of course, at the time, who does? No. I didn't. I was just scared at the time and I was confused and I didn't know what to do. So I ran away, basically. Yeah. And then you decided at the end of the adventure that maybe acting was a thing you should do. I found my brother and I were traveling all around and we're it was probably late October. I was on the Blue Ridge Parkway in Virginia, pouring rain, beautiful parkway but on a motorcycle in fog and rain yeah not, not so good. great yeah we pulled off at a at a picnic spot which was really just a cement slab two posts a four posts and a and a roof and a picnic table and we w- w- decided to wait out the rain and well we were there for six days oh my god 
And I had a book of plays with me that I brought on a motorcycle. You can only take very few items. And I was reading the play and reading the play. Had a gabbler, it happened to be. And at the end of it, I was so taken away by the journey that this story had that I forgot to look up. I didn't know what time it was. It was already dark and it was it threw me. And I realized then that that powerful tool was where I wanted to go. And I created a credo for myself that I'm going to attempt to do something that I love and hopefully become good at as opposed to doing something I was apparently good at but not in love with. Let, let, me, let me ask you about... I'm so fascinated by actors because the, the art of becoming someone else uh, is so, uh, to me, such a challenging thing to do. Uh, but uh, I also could see how it could be a very um, therapeutic thing to do. Mm. Particularly, you know, in your own, by your own account, you were kind of a... Um, I don't know if shy was the right word, but you weren't you weren't in in the middle of the action. No, no, I wasn't. All I was of insecure that insecure and shy. And, yeah. yeah, and and but that you know I uh, I did one a, a podcast a podcast with um, with Tom Hanks, who I know is a great friend and 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 I guess mentor in certain ways of of yours. And I was you know he is so perpetually cheerful his public image and really in private he's such an upbeat guy and I uh, in getting ready for that show I I learned what a difficult childhood he had had Mm -hmm. Uh, just 10 different homes and Mm -hmm. uh, and he said you know I, I, I found my community in the theater and so I was wondering you know for you what what was it about someone who is reserved in 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 life could be so enveloped by by the theater and was it therapeutic for you it still is i think being an actor taking on other characters it helps to illuminate who you might become so if you are a little retardant in in being able to present who am I? Well, until I figure that out, I can be this other person. I could put all my energies into something else and someone else. And that's not me. So it's, it's, it's not self-examination. It's examination. It's almost like doing a biography as opposed to an autobiography. Uh-huh. And through that, that you're working on other characters, there's a little bit of a safety net to that. Yeah. As long as I'm focusing on someone else, I don't necessarily have to focus on See, me. See, but to me, the, the thing that would be challenging is getting out of yourself so that you don't feel like you're being judged uh, you know, getting up in front of people, you, you started as a stage actor, yeah. uh, which you're back back now doing, brilliantly doing, but you're in front of a bunch of people. They're watching you perform. Uh, my thing would be they're judging me every second, <laughs> but uh, and that's sort of what makes, some, makes people w- withdrawn, you yeah. know, not wanting to be judged, not wanting to be... so. It's interesting to me. You're saying they're not judging you; they're judging the character. Well, they're they're 
they probably are judging me as well. Certainly, that's there's there's merit to that. But the where an actor needs to get to, and I actually learned a lot of this through Tom, and his comportment on the set and his approach to how he develops a character and how he appreciates with every fiber in his body that he is a professional actor. That's his true joy. And that became my true joy as well. So we are judged by what we're doing. But if you judge yourself even more, not in a, in, in a, in a helpfully critical way, in a constructive way that I am just going to pour myself into this character. I'm going to learn everything that I can and develop a physicality for the character, a backstory for the character and how he handles himself, how he speaks, all these things. The more of those items I can control, the more of a cloak that I'm wearing Mm. that, that is, less me and more that other person. And so you don't have to reveal the real you. There are many, many shy actors. Yeah, I think what's stunning to me is how many I run into. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't travel in in, in that world, but there's this cross-pollination between yes. politics and, 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 and yeah. people in, in show business and... You know, you meet like a Robert De Niro, for example, right. you know, very shy. He, you know? Yeah, he's not a, 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 a large presence. He doesn't right. say, hello, everybody. Right. He's, he's a very, a very, I wouldn't say introverted, but uh, but calm and Not the quiet. guy in Taxi Driver. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But see, that's where you see it, where De Niro and many other actors can turn it on and where they see a need for a character to be boastful or to be big as life or something like an LBJ. Yeah. I can put it in there and I, and you're so tired after doing that, that what you really want is to go home and put on pajamas. <laughs> That's just so true. Yeah. And you know, I don't, I don't crave the limelight. It came to me. I didn't go after it. It is part of, it is a residual of what I love to do. Yeah. But I am not someone who craves attention. It's interesting because your dad wanted to be a star. And what you're saying is it was the work. It's it's the work. It is always the work. And you, uh, and you know, what was interesting to me uh, in this, uh, in this uh, material that I looked over in preparation for this is the pages and pages of roles that you've played and, and many of them leading up to becoming a star. I mean, you know, character roles and, you know, in a million different television shows and and some lesser known films. And um, I mean, you, you, you kind of worked your way up. Well, I appreciate the sentiment behind that, but the truth is, is that almost all actors who are working for a living work their way up to what? We don't know. There's so much uncertainty to this. I certainly didn't set out to be a star. My goal was to be a, a working actor. That is still my, my proudest professional achievement is that I say, and I have since I was 25, I make my living as an actor. 
however that living was in the beginning, it's okay. Just as long as you can make a living as an actor, you are the luckiest person in the world. Were you, were there periods of time in those early years when that was a question in your mind as to whether you could make a living being an actor? Or did you just, were you so uh, 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 frenetic about finding, you know, I know you did voiceover and you did voice acting and Mm -hmm. the Power Rangers was something that you voiced over. Mm. Haim Saban, friend of mine, hired you to do do that. but did, was there did, was there any question in your mind that you could make a go of this? You can't have a question in your mind. You, what I tell young actors now is that it, if you just want to act, uh, go act. If there's any community theater that you can go do that. That's great. If you want to do this as a profession, you have to fall in love. You have to be committed to this as a relationship, a lifelong relationship. If you are going into this saying, I'm going to give it five years to achieve such and such, stop now, turn around, and go do something else that you can be happy doing. This is not, this is not it for you. It is only if that flame is burning and you say, I just want to be in. Like Tom said, I, I found a community. Yes. I found my home. Yes. And that's where... where if you fall in love is another way of saying it. This is my home. This is where I love to go. So whether that puts me on stage or in television or film or wherever or writing a book or whatever, you're expressing yourself creatively. That's where you should be. You, you, you became, uh, I guess, a, a star uh, in... in in the sense that you became well-known with Malcolm in the Middle, which was a... uh, I know Tom cast you uh, in a movie as well. You played Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, I've worked for Tom for like four times. Yeah. I can't wait to have a a show that I'm producing that I can hire Tom. (laughs) It's only fair. He'll be... If he's he's listening, he'll be... (laughs) He'll he'll be eager to follow up, I'm sure. But... um, uh, and that was you played Hal in that in that show, and that was um, uh, one kind of character. But every, I mean, the the thing, Breaking Bad uh, became kind of a. Uh, I mean, it was the first big binge yeah. thing, yeah. Uh, and such an interesting character, uh, Walter White. Every I, I feel stupid saying to people, if you haven't seen it. Uh, because almost everybody has it feels like, but he was a a, a chemistry teacher who gets a fatal uh, diagnosis and then makes certain, a f- even more fatal decision. Right. Yeah. Uh, to uh, to get into the meth business to make money, and the thing went from there for seasons and and uh, but uh, the thing I wondered about when I. Uh, when I was reading your book and reading this material was obviously you try and find a character. You want to find who that character is. You want to understand from the inside out. And part of uh, Walter White was that he, he didn't realize his dreams. He was a, he was in, in, in his own eyes and perhaps in the eyes of his children and sort of a failure. Uh, And, 
I I wondered if your your childhood experience of watching your dad struggle and fail and so on was something that you drew on uh, in in composing that character. It was certainly something that was a part of my life, and I grew accustomed to being able to open up that. I draw back the curtain of my own personal experiences all the time. I'm willing to do it. I want to do it. I know that it's what I need to do to to be able to honestly express myself. The vulnerability factor of that um, is is the risk factor that actors take, your, your emotional risk in, in, in particular. Um, is there like PTSD kind of, I mean, when you do that, when you, you know, I wrote, a, I wrote a memoir myself and I wrote about some painful things in my own life and I literally found myself in tears yeah. writing about it. Yeah. And it was very therapeutic That's right. at the end, but it was emotionally draining. Yes. And you do this on a regular basis. Right. <laughs> yes, the book was that way too. It was yes. very therapeutic. It was a cathartic yes. uh, experience for sure. And uh, the the book was the same as when I go on stage or in front of a camera. I have to seek the honesty of that. Where's the truth in that? Um, a lot of people say, well, actors are a bunch of liars. And I look at it the opposite. We are always looking for the truth. Where's the, where's the honesty? Where's the authenticity of this character? And that's what I want to hold on to, <clears throat> to present. And in, in some cases, you protect yourself even more when you go deep into a character because I, I then can live <clears throat> vicariously <clears throat> excuse me, through, through where the character is going. Uh, Walter White um, became, uh, went from this sort of benign figure to sort of the epitome uh, of evil um, and you lived through that evolution. Mm. Um, what was that experience like in, in trying to find the depths of, of who he was? What was interesting about that is when you usually take on a character, you take on the entire character, the scope of that character, because you're going to be playing him in a play or in a movie and the play is one night, you go through beginning, middle, and end. In a movie, you go, it's shot out of sequence, but you have a beginning, middle, and end for a finite amount of time. Uh, in doing this series, I couldn't project where and how I would behave as Heisenberg when he turned dark. I can only start my work as Walter White, a devoted husband, father, teacher, uh, a man of science who is excited, but l trying to share that excitement with with uh, with a bunch of kids who are uh, who are uh, not knuckleheads. Excited. They're knuckleheads. Yes, they're, they they show nothing but apathy toward toward it and 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 push it away. So he's lost his his spark. And we catch him at a point where a depression has seeped into his life. 
He's allowed his body to go to seed and he's pudgy. He looks like he needs a haircut all the time. He grew this silly mustache. This was all by design when I was creating the character and, and discussing it with the wardrobe department, the makeup department, and with Vince Gilligan and figuring out this is how I think he should, he should wear clothes. The whole thing about the clothes were I want him to be invisible. So the clothes in the beginning of the show are pale avocados and taupe and sand colors and, and cream and things that would just make him kind of disappear into the walls and nothing. His mustache was senseless, either grow it or shave it, but <laughs> what, what is going on? Get a haircut. His pudgy and, and mm-hmm. kind of pale skin, he just didn't care anymore. He was losing his sense of desire to try to do his best. He's kind of beaten down. And that made him susceptible to a decision that was fatalistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The, the, I went back and looked at the final episode when he, um, when he says to Spoiler him, alert. When, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't. <laughs> That's all, right. all these years later. You can. But I mean, the gen- but the point he made at the end was I, to his wife was I. The whole premise was he was making money for his family and he left money for him. But he said, "I didn't do it for you. I did it for me." And I thought that was so interesting because um, the guy who was kind of a schlub at the beginning, who was you know these poignant scenes of his high school kids catching Mm -hmm. him washing their cars Mm -hmm. for money because he needed extra money, uh, transformed himself uh, in a horrific way. But he wasn't a schlub anymore. Yes, he, he had a metamorphosis. And along with that uh, sense of pride and achievement was also ego and hubris and and greed and resentment and anger and all the things that can seep into someone he was fully alive he he relinquished the last 2 years of his life of boredom and complacency for a, a world of excitement and achievement and danger and ultimately death I want to ask you about um, uh, three of your projects that were uh, of interest to me because of uh, the world in which I live. One is the play you're doing now, and I'll save that uh, for the end, but uh, okay. the uh, movie Trumbo, about Dalton Trumbo, the screenwriter. And I grew up here in New York City, um, and uh, it was just after the McCarthy era, but there were still rumblings here uh, about lives that were destroyed by it. And, um, and he, of course, was uh, blacklisted. Yeah. Um, what drew you to that, that it's a, role? It's always story. It's always the, the impact of the story. Is it sociopolitically important? Is it pure entertainment? Is it uh, something that resonates with you? Is it something you relate to? Any of the, and all of those things, when we read a good novel and we are just, we can't wait to get back to mm-hmm. the next chapter. Yeah. And that's it. That's what stimulates an actor's decision making as well. And certainly mine for, for 
Dalton Trumbo. And this man who was, uh, he was irascible and cantankerous and a wordsmith and brilliant and... and eccentric. Eccentric and mm-hmm. righteous and, and justified in his motivations. Uh, and he was not going to be cowed. And, and, and he was going to demand justice for himself. Well, uh, he paid a price for that. You know, he he went to jail for a year. He was in prison. I shouldn't say jail. He was in prison in Kentucky for a year, not because he committed a crime, but because he was found in contempt of Congress, because he didn't respond to Congress the way that Congress demanded he respond. He said he, he, he didn't want to answer the question the way it was posed. He wanted to make a statement. There's it's, a lot of that not responding to Congress uh, going around right now. Uh, is, oh, is there really? I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> but it was such a dark period in, yeah. in our history and a reminder of how quickly things can go sideways uh, if we're not vigilant. It um, is so relevant to today's world because what we have now is a polemic of, of ideals. We are... We have my side and your side, and if I don't win, you you win, and that's yeah, zero sum game. Zero game. sum game. It is not the way politics should be. And I hearken back to LBJ when I was doing the research on LBJ. Boy, he knew politics better than anybody of his era. Yeah, maybe in the century. Right. He knew that it was a it was a, a horse trade. I got to give you something, but I want something from you. And he didn't vilify someone who was on the opposite of the aisle. He engaged with them. It was very common, if you'll recall, and what I read from all these beautiful historians who wrote these marvelous books about how they used to socialize with each other. Yes. And how that little act has been lost. David, if you and I were of opposing political ideology and we had dinner together w- with our families even the next day when we are in congress or whatever i'm not going to throw you under the right, bus right i like you right and you gave me that number of that physician from my mother exactly. that helped me yeah well, partly and, it was because they lived together yes at the time they, they most of them lived in washington didn't go back uh every weekend and and they raised their families together and so on but it also there was uh there was an ethic that i think partly grew out of world war ii that you know you can be have different views and yeah. still have but this is so interesting right now because you know joe biden uh, as we speak just announced yeah. his candidacy for president and he is a person of that he came out of a different era he came to this the the uh the Senate in the 1970s, just a decade after Johnson was uh, president, and uh, and and he is someone who sp- spoke at the funerals of Republicans like Jesse Helms, who prided himself, still does, on working across the aisle. That has put him at some political risk in this poli- in this environment. There is a sense that. That that zero sum game politics that you're talking about makes that a liability. 
when diplomacy became a bad word, a, a, a show of weakness, it stunned me that you would have that ability to negotiate and be cordial about it and not lose respect to a person who you may be completely at odds with. We've lost a little civility. And, yeah. you know, I, a lot has been said and talked about about this presidency, and I am not a fan of this president. I've been open about that. What, what I lament more than that is the loss of civility in Washington, that it's a, a cruder place. It, it's a harsher place. It's, it's filled with, with, uh, with such animosity and vitriol that if someone believes something opposite of your point of view, they're out to ruin the country. And it's like, well... Let's not let's keep the hyperbole right. aside. It's a different point of view. Can we get to a point where we can establish things that we do agree on and then maybe step off from there? Yeah, I uh, I think it's it's been abetted by lots of other things, including we'll, we'll get to this when we talk about network, but the media environment. Uh, and I mean, this, this, this sort of division has been monetized, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so there are forces that are pushing, uh, that, uh, that, that exacerbate it. But tell me about Lyndon Johnson. Mm. I, I have to tell you, I, I was a kid when he was president, but I was a, a freakishly interested in politics at an early age. I remember him so vividly and I was stunned at how much you captured him as I remembered him, and obviously I've seen video and and so on. Um, how, how did you how did you do that? And is it harder to to is it harder to envelop someone who lived and was a historical figure uh, than it is to kind of create a fictional figure? I think it is. I think it's more difficult to take on a character who lived and was notable enough to write a story about him because it's not only that people alive remember that person in the case of Dalton Trumbo or, or Lyndon Johnson I met with his daughters and speechwriters and 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 his attorney and I mean people who probably looked at film and yes and knew him well and it's not to be able to to say that you're going to create an impersonation of someone that's the mistake and sometimes you see a performance where it's an impersonation. And I told his daughters, uh, Linda and Lucy, that I have no intention of impersonating your father. I want to get his essence. I want to get his sensibilities, his, his rightfulness, where he was strong and also where he was weak, where he was fragile, where he was... Uh, where he sh shined. And, and both are so important because he so was such important. a powerful figure and yet such a fragile and damaged he figure. He really was. But the other flip side to that, so the, certainly you can't do LBJ without getting into that hill country twang that he had. Yeah. Uh, I don't have his height. So I was on stage, I was wearing uh, elevated shoes as well as in the movie. Um, and But the other sense that makes it difficult for a non-fictional character is 
that there's a responsibility connected to this. You can't just, I can't willy-nilly go in there and go, well, I think I'll do this and that's going to be good enough. I felt a tremendous weight on my shoulders to get it right. Uh, when you're creating a fictional character, you have a lot more latitude right. to be able to create what you think it could be. Mm-hmm. And no one's going, that's not what a Martian <laughs> would not, do. That's not Walter you know? White. <laughs> yes, I knew right. Walter White. That's right. Yeah, no one's going to yeah. say that. Um, you know, the thing that uh, I, I've read some of your interviews about All the Way, and you talked about Johnson's um, Johnson's need for approbation and love, and um, also a guy who had a difficult childhood. And mm-hmm. um, but that was uh, that really was at the core of what so much of what drove him. Uh, you know. Ha- so so how when how did you come to that conclusion was that as a result of the reading was yeah. it as a result of the conversations were people candid with you about about yes. about him and and his vulnerabilities as they can be this you have to trust the source uh some people remember him from a different way bill moyers for example was press secretary, yeah, speechwriter, yeah. speechwriter, and and was with him from very early on. Um, he told me in 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 a time that I spent with him and his wife Judith, he said, "I guess I can sum it up by saying, I didn't like him, but I loved him." That hit me like a ton of bricks. How can that dichotomy exist? within someone and I realize oh there is ways there are ways there and that's that pointed me toward his mood swings and toward what you know how he vacillated between uh good and bad and 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 greatness and smallness greatness and smallness yeah yeah you know someone once told me about uh politicians that um so many of them have something broken and that there's uh you know the need for approbation Mm. is really important but the flip side of it is the loss of approbation if you're trying to replace love that you didn't get or you were raised if you're not successful you're not loved and so on right that if you fail it's more than just you didn't pass a bill you didn't get elected it's the withdrawal of love and affection, which right. is devastating. Yeah. And you, you got the sense, I get the sense, for, I've obviously read a lot about Johnson, but also the way, I mean, you know, how immobilized he was by the thought of failure right. at times, because it wasn't just about l- losing a bill, losing a fight. It was about losing love. love. Yeah. He was known to say, well, if they don't love me, I'll just go back to the ranch to hell with it all. <laughs> I don't need this, you know, and and uh, almost like threatening emotional suicide. Uh, and and Lady Bird would come to his rescue. Now, Lyndon, that's not the case. You know, this this country loves you. And she would pull him back. Well, I don't know. Yeah, and she'd pull him back in. But his his neediness really stemmed from his childhood like yeah. most of ours does right. the formative years his mother was a very tough woman 
and uh, was angry at his father for business losses that he suffered uh, when she was uh, displeased with Lyndon's behavior or grades or something like that. I read in a couple accounts. I can't quite give you the, the mm-hmm. which source material it came from, but that she would withhold her uh, love to him. She would withhold her appreciation or even his her, her recognition of him. Almost uh, treat him like he's invisible. Now this goes exactly to what yeah uh, that what what I was I was referencing before. So failure has such great consequences if it's attached to love, you Enormous know. Enormous consequences. Yeah, and yeah. And the tragic thing about Lyndon Johnson, obviously you went through 1964 and his re-election, right. and that's the, the play in the, the movie uh, went through that. But in uh, uh, but he, he his life ended uh, he, as a kind of disgraced president, not because of, and not because of scandal, but because of the decisions that he made and he left the White House, he couldn't run for re-election and died four years later uh, yeah. just a, 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 of a, a broken heart. The thing that he feared the most is he, he fe- feared a lot of things and he feared that he would die of a, of a heart attack and sure enough, he did. And what was great about All the Way and, and Robert Schenken who wrote it yeah. was that... He was a, a president and a man worthy of revisiting. It wasn't to rewrite history. It was to revisit history. And the the rap on LBJ, up until, I think, all the way, was that he's a failed president because of his actions and decision-making for Vietnam. Yes. Yeah, what it, he was able to accomplish. Extraordinary. And, extraordinary. Yeah. The domestic agenda yeah. that he passed really laid the foundation. Uh, it was the... Uh, foundation of of modern the modern social safety network that's right yeah and he doesn't nearly get the you know tom harkin the former senator from iowa was a huge quite a progressive guy was a huge lbj fan and always when i was in the white house he always wanted us to do more to recognize lbj's contribution because it was overshadowed tom by the way was a a a vietnam war uh, veteran so network yeah uh, this extraordinary uh, play that I had a chance to see uh, last night. We all remember, uh, some of us, I should say, remember <laughs> the movie. I, I forget not everybody is of a certain age. Yes. But uh, in 1976 or so, yes. uh, Patty Chayefsky's screenplay, mm-hmm. the movie was was great. Uh, Peter Finch played Howard, Howard Beale. Right. Um, but How- Howard Beale... Well, just set up the set up the plot. But Howard Beale was not the character that you play in the way that you play it. He was a much more sort of he lacked dimensionality in uh, in that in that film. Well, I, I, I'm hesitating only because I I don't want to diminish another actor's performance. Well, he was, in, he was so. working with the the, the way the yes. plot allowed him to work right well basically for me when i recalled peter finch's performance as howard beale in the movie he railed he was angry he vented his his mm-hmm. fierce anger 
uh, at the world and his and his followers, his millions of followers on on television. And I and I yeah that works that works that, that and certainly he won an Oscar for it and a, a really good performance. And I thought, is there something I, I don't want to to be derivative of that? I want to carve out my own Howard Beale. So I started thinking about it, and what I realized where I want to go first is what's the emotion that happens before anger? It's usually pain. Right. Harm done to your soul somehow. You've been deprived. You've been rejected. You've been... uh, In this case, he was fired. From his yeah. role as a long-time role as a TV anchor, fired for bad right. ratings. And I, but I wanted to have more than that. He is—he's a widower. He doesn't have yes. any kids. Yes, yes. I just—he drinks too much. He, but he—he he was caving in. He feels irrelevant now, and I—I uh, I just wanted him to be depressed and down, and and so that when he has this epiphany, he first you feel the pain that's behind it and that erupts into anger as opposed to seeing the volcano already spewing and and as you play the sort of the scene that everybody remembers i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore um the you develop that in a really really you know, riveting and moving way because essentially the guy's having a breakdown. Mm. Uh, and so he's not a comic figure. Uh, he's a tragic figure. Yeah. And and you capture that tragedy. The story, for those who don't know, uh, is about this anchor who gets fired for bad ratings, has a breakdown, erupts in anger, exhorts people, tells some hard, tells some unwelcome truths, uh, but about about the nature of television, about the nature of uh, uh, of corporate power, mm, corporate uh, greed, and cor- being addicted to our televisions, and that's we don't read anymore. Right, we're all drones of this of this machinery of the big corporate machinery. Yeah. It's all fiction, of course. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it was written satirically yes. back in the mid seventies by Patty Chayefsky and, and adapted for the stage by Lee Hall really wonderfully. And so here we are now. Is it a satire? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, you heard, I mean, you hear every night how people react to his Jeremiah's yeah. and they're reacting in the moment. They're yeah. not reacting 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, you know, television is different now. Sometimes we watch watch it on these little devices that we carry around. But we are still, as he said, prisoners yeah. of, of the media yeah. uh, in ways that can be really insidious. Well, it never occurred to me growing up with Walter Cronkite and um, Huntley Brinkley and those folks that I was being packaged, that news was being packaged and presented, and that there were stories that were not going to be told that night that happened. And, and now I know, oh, wow, I was so innocent and naive. Of course it was. Walter Cronkite had to say what was in the producers' meeting, this is what we're going to do, right. this is what we're not going to do. And you hope that it was an altruistic decision being made, but... Come on, some political ideology. Well, and not just political ideology. And I'm very well aware that today, you know, 
the news media news outlets are a trust in some ways, but also a business, yeah. and that is a terribly difficult conflict. And that all, of course, is aired in in this in in this play. Yeah. Uh, That's right. That 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 conflict. The conflict also, you know, I I uh, it's akin to the the health. Uh, situation in in our country uh, healthcare um if as long as healthcare is attached to profit and the lack of giving healthcare is more profit for the company we are going to be in a in a situation that is unhealthy and yeah. inhumane I, I just put my little political stamp well, on I, things I, there for you I, 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 <laughs> point a, a point well taken uh, and obviously, we're going to have we're going to have long discussions about this in the next uh, oh, yeah. couple of years, in the years, uh, the years beyond. Um, the 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 it was striking last night, and it must happen every single night that you do this play when he's delivering his Jeremiah, and you and we should point out the way this play is done. You're you're actually acting to camera. A lot. A and lot a lot of, of this being yeah. projected there. I should ask you parenthetically, did all your years of television help prepare you for that? Because you use the camera in this play um, so effectively. I, I look at the camera as a character. I'm looking into that dark lens with nothing staring back at me. And I'm imagining that I'm speaking to millions of people and trying to convey a message and trying at times to manipulate them, to sway their, their sentiments to my side, to my way of thinking. And uh, so I look at it like another character on stage with me. The, um, the, the line I was speaking of is in this Jeremiah, he talks about all the things that, all the threats that are not being addressed, and one of them is, and the Russians. Yes. And... You could hear the sort of murmur yeah. through the, the crowd. Laughter, yeah. This is another one of those, uh, the more things change. By the way, unadulterated, not changed by Patty Chayefsky's original screenplay. Yeah. Same thing when I talk about, I'll tell you who's trying to buy, uh, buy up this corporation now. It's the Saudi Arabian Investment Corporation. Nothing has changed. So we are exposed to things that stay the same, and yet change in different ways. It's, it's eerily prescient. Well, Brian Cranston, it's an honor to be with you, not Thanks, because David. you're a star, <laughs> no. but because you're a remarkable actor, and it is a real treat to be able to, uh, to, to enjoy that, and, uh, uh, and a remarkable person as well. If people read your book, A Life in Parts, I think they'll appreciate your, your honesty and well, your passion. You. Thank Good you so to much. be with you. It was an honor. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, presented by Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Matthew Jaffe. The show is also produced by Pete Jones, Zane Maxwell, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. 
Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 